Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome to another episode of Romaniacs, the Brexit podcast that's mad as hell and isn't going to take it anymore, but in a nice way. I'm Dorian Linsky and this week we'll be digging into Labour's new and improved Brexit policy. Last weekend, the Shadow Brexit Secretary Keir Starmer announced that Labour would support continued membership of the single market and customs union beyond March 2019. Under a Labour government, we'd continue to abide by EU free movement rules, accept the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice and pay into the EU budget after we leave the EU on B-Day. And Starmer raised the possibility of the UK staying in the customs union and single market in perpetuity. Has Christmas come early for Remainers? Is Labour now the party of soft Brexit? And what happens if you want Britain to stay in the EU but you don't want Jeremy Corbyn as Prime Minister? And as usual, we have our crack panel of metropolitan elitists to help make sense of it all. Peter Collins is a former business editor of The Economist and ex-BBC, and now he's a keen armchair Brexitologist. And last week he was skiving off in cosmopolitan Madrid. Hello, Peter. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Uh, What are they saying about us in Spain? Well, at the moment, our counterparts in the Madrid metropolitan elite are more concerned about their own breakaway, which is uh, Catalonia. The regional government of Catalonia is defying the national government, defying the courts, and uh, holding a referendum on independence. And, of course, one of the big worries that the Spanish have had about Brexit is that it encourages Scotland to break away from England and therefore encourages Catalonia and who knows one day the Basque country to um, to, to break away from Spain. They've got there's been a lot of coverage in the last few days about the the fact that Juncker and Barnier have been criticising Britain. They're sort of very much following that line that Britain is not taking the talks seriously. However, uh, Rajoy Mariano Rajoy, the Prime Minister of uh, Spain, has been worried about um, the fact that an awful lot of Spanish investment has gone into Britain. There's Santander with a branch on every corner here. Uh, there's uh, Ferrovial, which owns Heathrow Airport, Glasgow Airport, Aberdeen Airport, Southampton Airport. There's a lot of Spanish investment, surprisingly, if you look at it in Britain. As for the typical Espanol en la calle, I saw some very wry comments um, in, in the reader comments section of an article in ABC, which is a conservative daily, something like The Telegraph. Somebody called Pepito Grillo said, well, what did you expect? They call us the Islanders, by the way, Los Isleños. Wow. What did you expect from the Islanders? We know what they're like. He accuses Britain of uh, resorting to this thing that the Spanish called Mariar la Perdiz, which means pest of the partridge. <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> It means deliberate time wasting. I don't know what the origin is, but it means time-wasting. <laughs> this is the problem, he says. Don't waste a partridge's time. Exactly. Yeah. It's either, and he says, this is the problem. They, meaning us, still think there's something important in the world. All they are is an island in the corner of Europe. There's another reader, JFS1729, who says... The idea that like, how important you are is just by how close to the middle you are. Yeah, indeed. So yes. like Liechtenstein <laughs> yeah. is like... Yeah. Yes, well, exactly. Is, is the hub. Yeah, so we're peripheral. Anyway, another reader was saying that um, what the islanders want is all the privileges of the European Union and none of the responsibilities. And he says the EU negotiators to say that, to, should say to them, are you jerks or what? Um, so there you go. That's the, that's the Spanish view. They kind of have said that, to be fair. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. 
Um, also with us is Ian Dunt, editor of politics.co.uk and author of Brexit, What the Hell Happens Now? Hello, Ian. How are you doing? Uh, very well. Thank you. Well, it's been a big week for both of us as we were both named soft right in Twitter user <laughs> <Yes>. The Awakens uh, <laughs> methodologically sound list of political <laughs> commentators' biases, uh, along with Andrew Marr, Matthew Dancona, David Dimbleby, and most of the new statesmen, uh, but not Peter Hitchens, who's on the centre-left, apparently. <laughs> Last week we were centrist, so it's been, it's been quite a journey. <laughs> who, knows, who knows where we're going to end up? Um, and the weird thing is, is because I'm not really a political commentator in any other respect except this podcast, he must have listened to this podcast and decided that it was mm. right-wing. That's the conclusion he came to from the things that you've been saying. Has this forced you to reevaluate your approach to the whole thing? I don't... Yeah, I mean, the bit... Because there's literally a bit where I went, I am left-wing, literally <laughs> on one of the podcasts. So, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's very baffling, but I'm sure he's done all the science. So uh, I guess we can't argue. I have no doubt about that either. We're going to look at this week's Brexit news in a minute, but first, here's Peter with the housekeeping. Yes, just to remind you that Romaniacs now has its own YouTube channel. We're putting up the complete show every week, plus some little snippets now and again. Go to YouTube and search for Romaniacs. Big, big um, complicated thing there, really. Also, please subscribe, because the more subscribers we get, the more we will be pri- prioritised by the almighty YouTube algorithm. Like Grace Jones and everybody else, we are slaves to the algorithm. Apple users, <laughs> please also subscribe. I didn't write this, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Apple, <laughs> Apple users, please subscribe via the iPhone podcasts app or iTunes and leave us a nice review and star rating while you're there. It all helps us to reach more people and get the word out. You can find all these links plus links to Romaniacs on Spotify, Acast, iTunes, Stitcher and probably MySpace and Friends Reunited as well at Romaniacs.com. Come gather ye round citizens, it's time for the Brexit news. In news that will surprise nobody, it turns out that EU citizens in the UK think the Home Office cannot be trusted. Groups that represent EU citizens who want to preserve their right to remain in the UK wrote to the Home Office saying exactly that after the latest immigration farce in which up to 100 EU nationals were instructed to leave the UK and threatened with deportation despite having full residency rights at least up to March 2019. If serious errors like this can be made whilst the UK is still administering a system based on EU freedom of movement rights, they wrote, what is likely to happen when it is running its own system having taken control again? That's from the joint letter from the three million and British in Europe, which is not the same as Britain in Europe. Peter, what's happened here? So it all began a few days back when a Finnish historian, Eva Johanna Holmberg, who teaches at a university here in London and has been living in Britain with her British husband for almost a decade, uh, revealed on social media that she'd been sent this letter by the Home Office telling her, get out or we'll deport you and we'll fine you and so on. Uh, eventually, the government admitted that up to 100 EU nationals had been sent similar etter- letters. Uh, Theresa May apologised, said it was an unfortunate error, a little bit of hand-wringing. Dr Holmberg said that she'd got a phone call from the Home Office apologising and she said to them, well, how about the £3,800 of legal bills I've run up already dealing with this? Are you going to pay that? And there was, of course, no answer to that. Now, the point is that we, you know, we're seeing stories like this ever more frequently about the Home Office's immigration division cock- things up, you know, sort of taking a very aggressive attitude and an, an unwarranted attitude. This is even before they've had to set up a whole new system to administer this whole new immigration status that EU nationals will have. So, you know, you can see what happened. I would imagine that somebody who isn't really familiar with the rules and uh, in, in the Home Office has decided to send out all these letters and 
what's going to happen when we have the new system? We're going to have even more inexperienced officials managing a new system that almost nobody will know how to administer. This is just going to be the start of it, isn't it? So who are these letters meant for? I, I think, I, I, as far as I understand it, it were, they were intended for the people who received them, but they, they shouldn't have been sent. No, but I mean, this style of letter, who, who would be legitimately sent this well, letter? This which, was, are, which are you citizens? If you were a non-EU citizen... I guess. No, no, th- this, was the, this was the letter you send right at the end of the process. Yes, yeah. This is the get-the-fuck-out yeah. letter. Yeah, yeah. This isn't the, 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 the... You know, remember last year, there were these letters which were basically like, you've done this, basically people that have uh, sort of applied for permanent residency. And on the basis of not that, on the basis of being rejected for that, the letter then said, you should start making arrangements now so that you would yeah. leave. This is different. The ones that were sent out in these, this 100 was basically that you have reached the end of the line, you will leave now, or else we will come and we will detain you and we will deport you. I mean, this is the absolute end of the line on this stuff. And I actually find it, you know, you've got to go with a cock-up rather than conspiracy, right? I mean, that's the default instinct of most things around the, the way the British state operates. It's actually quite hard to see how these letters got sent out. It really is difficult. I mean, that has to be signed off by a senior case work, worker on this stuff. So I think, how, how did it get to the stage where this was being signed off? Someone must have been aware of it at some stage. And it's, it's actually quite hard to resist... Um, bleaker interpretations of what took place here. But even if they're not true, you sort of end up thinking that this consistent incompetence by the Home Office, this absolute inability to get a handle on what it does year after year after year, just tearing up people's lives in this way without showing any instinct to try and correct itself or to improve the way that it does things, in itself is a form of malice. In itself shows that they just simply do not care about the people whose lives that they are touching. So even where it isn't conspiracy, there's something sort of conspiratorial about their total disregard for the people well, whose some, lives they operate. So many of the promises of Brexit are predicated on this kind of maximum competence. <laughs> and considering yes. that we know that maximum competence does, does not exist uh, in, in probably any government, um, but certainly not ours, it, it seems inevi- it's inevitable You know, there doesn't seem to be enough allowance for the fact that there are going to be mistakes because when the mistakes are made, they're like sort of existentially distressing. They're literally telling people to leave the country. And I think Ian pointed out, didn't you, in a blog post the other day, that it's 11 years since um, uh, John Reid, Labour Home Secretary, said the Home Office is not fit for purpose. So that's, it's something that's, you know, that's after a long period of Labour government, and there was several more years of Labour government, then the Conservatives took over, and nothing has changed under either government that the Home Office is still not fit for purpose, that nothing gets done, because, because they're terrified of, frankly, a minority of people who are so aggressive towards immigrants that, you know, anything that looks like going soft on immigrants uh, is, is seen as political poison. Yeah. You know, I had a, I remember years ago, I had this Indian girlfriend, she she basically got a visa for the UK, or she was going for the visa, she'd been offered a job here, they'd been able to demonstrate that she specifically would be able to do the job, it was about targeting Asian sort of women for, for medical in- information. And she filled out, you filled out this form, I mean, it takes thousands of pounds, and hours, and days, weeks, really, with a lawyer to put these forms together exactly how you're supposed to have them. Part of it is this bank statement, one of the things you're supposed to have to show that you, you can independently fund yourself. And it needs to be stamped by the bank right at the top or else it doesn't count. So you got that stamp, you send in the package, and they still rejected it. And they rejected it with a letter on top saying, this has not been stamped by the bank. You need to have a bank statement you know, that is stamped by the bank, something which you, you would be able to see right in front of you has taken place. Now, the point that they make that rejection, you can appeal, which is a lot more money, and obviously you should appeal, because it doesn't make any sense. The thing that they're saying is not there is there. But if you lose that appeal, 
you don't get to come here at all, even on a tourist visa. You get a black mark on your passport. Those are the consequences of this system. As soon this sort of in the end she appealed and she got it, it was fine. But like this is one of these things of just how fundamentally the Home Office doesn't work. That a five minute conversation, a one minute conversation would be enough for someone to go, Oh, of course you do have the stamp, you don't need it there. But instead you are sucked into this completely faceless, monstrous bureaucratic system where you can't access anyone to talk to, where every time you get advice you're suddenly hemorrhaging cash to, to lawyers just to get there and where if any time the decision goes against you which it will do without rhyme or reason you are then blocked for 10 years and that's 10 years where it's just like you know I mean in that relationship at the time would just be like well we wouldn't have been able to see each other for 10 years or I'd have had to leave the UK the consequences are so severe and the competence so low that it is unthinkable that we allow this department to continue in the way that it does and yet it does because frankly this country just doesn't really give a damn about the people whose lives it affects Moving on, there's speculation that Brexit could claim a major victim with the potential closure of Vauxhall's factory in Ellesmere Port, home of the Astra. Owners PSA, who also own Peugeot, will decide by the end of this year whether to manufacture a new version of the Astra on the Wirral after 2021 or to move production abroad. Chief Executive Carlos Tavares is a ruthless businessman and without automatic access to the EU, Vauxhall's Merseyside plant would be vulnerable. As well as the terrible job losses, this is yet another addition to the battle for the narrative, where leavers claim every bit of good news with a despite Brexit hashtag, and Remainers try not to say I told you so at every bit of bad news. Peter, you used to write about the motor industry at The Economist. How vulnerable is Vauxhall in Ellesmere Port, and how much of a Brexit bellwether are factories like these? Well, it's certainly vulnerable, um, uh, and as with a lot of sort of Brexit-related business news, Brexit is only one of several big factors, so that always gives both sides plenty of room to argue. So you've got two things uh, apart from Brexit. One is that Vauxhall and its German sister company, Opel, which have been losing money for years and years and years, have recently been bought by PSA, which owns Peugeot and Citroën, the obvious logic of such a merger is to cut the spare capacity, basically. Um, and, you know, PSA has factories in eastern France that make the um, Peugeot 308 and the Citroën C4, which are basically the rivals for the Astra. And, you know, it makes sense to shove them all on one or two production lines in France and forget about the factories in Britain. Um, and you've also got, on top of that, just generally the huge amount of overcapacity uh, for, for, for for the making of small cars in Western Europe. Um, you know, you've if you're going to choose, if you're a French company, you're going to, you've got a fr- factories in France and you've got factories in England, which ones are you going to choose to close down? Uh, there's the argument that maybe Ellesmere Port could be the place where they make all the cars for the UK market for all of the four brands. But even so, that would be a big squeeze down for Ellesmere Port com- give it, uh, compared with its output now. We should always do, by the way, the, the positive news, which is that Nissan, which has this much bigger plant in Sunderland, is talking about a big expansion of that that's much bigger than Ellesmere Port, and they're going to try and source more parts from Britain because the pound has gone down. But, of course, Nissan has that promise, the mysterious promise Mm. from Theresa May uh, that they would be protected from Brexit somehow, presumably to keep Ellesmere Port. Another promise along those lines, presumably involving taxpayers' money, will have to be made. It's It's incredible to tell companies you're going to be protected from this thing that you're spending all your time doing. Well, here we are back in the 1970s, you know, uh, handouts to car makers. I mean, you know, you'd expect it perhaps if Jeremy Corbyn was in in power, but it's Theresa May in power. And and then, you know, it's it's right or wrong. It's 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 a strange turn of affairs. It's like a third world tin pot dictatorship, just throwing bungs secretly towards companies to make up for the policies which you yourself have implemented, which are going to twat them around the face. It's completely unacceptable. It's not the way that you run a proper country and yet now this is it we're clinging on to the Nissan thing simply because they made some kind of secret deal 
just fucking abysmal. But our car industry is so tied to these European yeah. brands. In, indeed, I mean, how know, can well, yeah, in deck, exactly. We it. we export. 80% of the cars that we make in this country there's this big illusion that the car industry has shrunk down to nothing actually we're almost back to the peak of almost 2 million cars a year uh, that we had in the 70s because of all, and almost all because of foreign owned car makers that came here starting with the Japanese car makers in the 80s when they wanted to get into the EU market they saw Britain as the great place to set up to be in the EU uh, you know <laughs> wow yeah hindsight's <laughs> 2020 isn't well, it, it? It, it it worked for a very very long yeah. time because you, you remember in those days Toyota Nissan and Honda the big three Japanese companies they most certainly would not have been welcome to set up in in France or Germany Britain official I remember Norman Lamont remember him as a chancellor say it is Britain's official policy to welcome Japanese industry to set up factories in Britain that wasn't what the French were saying at the time of course now they all fight for foreign investment they would m most happily take Nissan and Toyota and Honda and, and, and Tata, which owns Jaguar Land Rover. they take all of them um, uh, if, if, if they could now. And that, that's how things have changed. And that's why we are uh, quite, a, quite a lot more vulnerable even than we were in the 80s. And they wrote this, of course, in the letter to Theresa May Indeed. quite shortly after the referendum or when she said that she was going to leave the single market yeah. or started making those noises. And they said, look, we only came here because it was the beachhead to Europe. You promised us this. This is why we're here, and now you're breaking your commitment. She seems to have completely ignored that letter, and now she's about to fly off to Japan, you know, for the supposed to strike this trade deal. <laughs> Whereas they sent out a statement before she even leaves going, by the way, the EU is self-evidently more important to us than the UK is going to be. And everything that we wrote in that letter still applies. None of this should be a surprise to anyone. The Japanese had said as explicitly as the Japanese can possibly do when speaking in diplomatic language that, you know, this was an error and if we pursued this pathway, we would come to regret it when it comes to Japanese industry and so it is proving to be. And can we talk about the narrative here? Because there was a, a story a couple of weeks ago about, uh, I think, a salad company in Kent, maybe, mm, mm. which had gone under. I think it's because of the exchange rate. On the one hand, it was a kind of, this is a, casual a casualty of Brexit. It sort of proves the political point. But my initial reaction was just, was real kind of gloom and sort of sadness that this company, and it was not a big company, had just been crushed by this sudden kind of drop in the pound. And, and I feel like, is ambivalence the moral way to sort of approach these stories? Because, you know, if you say, well, if you do this, then jobs will be lost. They do this jobs are then lost hmm. it's like well yes your prediction has come true but you can it, you can't gloat about this you no, can't go appalling. well take that you mm. know it, it's a very kind of like uncomfortable yeah response. well absolutely i mean these are people's lives no i mean this is it's not just their economics it's their family life it's everything i mean that company is a really useful case study right because it was a combination of things it was it basically there's a season where you start to need to bring in the salad from 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 europe rather than from uh, having it domestically and they could have probably got over the problem with exchange rates if they hadn't invested heavily in the company before the referendum result. So it was that perfect sort of thing of like you'd done the expenditure and then actually you got completely ruined by those exchange rates when you had to start bringing the product over. And every single one of those people, this is the trouble when we speak about economics, that we talk about it. You're right. It, ambivalent probably isn't the right, but like maybe a disinterested sort of tone of, you know, sort of disconnected from these economic units and see what happens. Every single time that happens, that is someone whose family life has been completely ruined by the political decisions that we've taken. And we mm. should be rightly angry about it. 
you know, we have this obsession, politicians have this obsession with car assembly plants as though they're the only jobs that matter. <laughs> it's yeah. so and you know that cars are sort of 20% or so of the added value. The, the assembly is only 20% of the added value of making a car. You know, an engine plant, which is, re, you know, really, really high technology, concentrated expertise, very well, quite high quality jobs, that can close and there's no big deal. But if it's an assembly plant, and likewise, you know, the, your salad company, you know, there's all these distribution businesses, they've got huge, massive numbers of jobs. They might not be all as glamorous and well-paid as being chief engineer at um, Vauxhall or whatever, mm. but they are jobs that provide livings for lots and lots and lots of people, more people even than the 169,000 people who work in the motor industry. But it's like miners in American politics, yeah. the coal miners. They get talked about so much, and there's such a tiny percentage of the workforce, but they're the kind of totemic blue-collar job. And I think car assembly seems to be that. It is here. in Europe, mm. yeah. Finally, the excellent new European newspaper has gathered together the best Brexit gags from the Edinburgh Festival, that notorious nest of media elitists. Obviously, like all stand-up jokes, they'll be at their best written down, then read out by me in a tiny <laughs> podcast studio. <laughs> <laughs> shall, shall, we, shall we try a few? Dane Baptiste says, A lot of Leave voters say, stop complaining, it's democracy. Well, democracy doesn't always work. If five people democratically elect to take your iPhone, it's a mugging. <laughs> OK, I like that one. Yeah, Max, you makes a very good point. Democracy isn't just about elections and, and the majority vote. I think we, as Romaniacs, uh, have been a bit slow to, to, to reiterate this point to, and to knock down this ridiculous idea that the referendum means we're no longer allowed to talk about all this. We have to shut up and keep quiet. You know, that isn't democracy. And a related point on that, Stephen Dorrell, the uh, former Conservative cabinet minister, pointed out that democracy is a process. It's not just an event. Uh, you know, we, keep, we need to keep making this point. And nice that he's done it humorously, I suppose. Yeah, Stephen Dorrell's joke wasn't as good, is it? That's true. No, no, he's oh, still good, working on his stand-up routine. It was a good point, but it just yeah. needs a little bit of a yes. twist at the end. Yes, yes. Um, <laughs> Leo Kerr said, one bloke said, I just voted leave to get the Muslims out. He's in for a shock when he finds out Muslims don't come from Luxembourg. <laughs> a bit political, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> And Tiff Stevenson said, I can barely rate a film on Netflix. Don't leave big decisions in my hands. Brexit is a terrible name for it. Sounds like cereal you eat when you're constipated. <laughs> Which is all right. I, can't, all right. I mm. can't rate a film on Netflix either. And I think there is actually a point about, de about decision-making and, uh, and about the fact that, that everyday decisions are quite challenging, the idea that one should just make this enormous one. And then clearly confused about the consequences. I hate that. I can't. I know that because we're just talking about jokes. But I actually, I hate this argument. I hate it when Romanians bring it up. This sort of really? thing of like, it's too. It was just a bit too complicated. You can't leave these kind of decisions to people. And I just think you can. And actually, people are very smart and they can engage. One of the problems is they have a political class which is profoundly stupid and intent on misleading them. They have a press which has its own interests and tries to distort information so that they find it hard to access it. And they are told, don't think cleverly about these subjects, think cleverly about these subjects. There's this old, I hate saying nice things about him because he's such a bellend, but like, if you, there's this old Chomsky thing of saying like, take like a, like a... I don't think Jerome Chomsky's a bellend, that's something someone from the soft right would say. <laughs> <laughs> Is this going to be a running theme throughout this? It's proving my left wing credentials here. So like, he has this thing where he basically says, like, look at the way that uh, working class guys in a bar or a pub talk about football. He's like, actually, there you see this highly complex way of thinking about things, of thinking about formations, of thinking about tactics, of thinking about the money behind something, of thinking what the manager's trying to do. Then you say, if that's capable there, you could be done in politics as well. But instead, what's told culturally is, no, no, use your, use your brain over here. Don't use your brain over here with the big boy politics stuff. You know, that's not the place for you. 
And I think that there's there's a danger when, when the remaining thing is, oh, it's such a complicated debate and people could never get a handle on it, of suggesting that the public are basically stupid. And I do not believe the public No, I think stupid. the way it was framed as a yes, no, to take all of that complexity, because actually if you think of the basket of issues and personalities and mm. you, that you're taking into consideration when you vote uh, in a general election, there's a lot of things in play. You're never just voting for this one thing. And in fact, you might, you know, yeah, yeah. different. you could take two different Labour voters, two different Conservative voters, and they could disagree on a lot. But I think taking such a complex issue, boiling it down to that, I mean, you don't have to be stupid to find that an extremely artificial uh, and, and sort of difficult task. I mean, they're, they're, I accept that you're being asked to assess uh, comparative risk. And that's very, very difficult. It's risk about the future. And so people kept on asking, remember at the time, for facts, give me facts. And it was like, well, actually, this isn't really a facts thing. This is actually an assessment of risk that you're being asked to do. And that is slightly different. I get that. But you take any general election, there's this sort of myth around it. This this absurdist myth when you really talk to normal human people, that people have voted for the entirety of a manifesto. And that manifesto will have a series of really quite complex policies in it, you know, to do with even tuition fees or whatever, where there's all these different angles to it. And there we're all happy with the fiction. You know, everyone's sort of investigated each of these policies and every vote has a mandate for every single aspect of that manifesto, which it quite demonstrably isn't. And I don't see that it's really any different there to here. So once we go down that road of sort of saying, well, actually, people's ability to assess technical issues is flawed, so flawed that they're unable to participate usefully in, in, a, in a vote, then I think we find ourselves in a very dangerous place indeed. And also, of course, just in terms of strategically of getting people on board, it also kind of suggests we think you're dumb. And I, that, that doesn't seem to me like a very useful way for us to be going about things. And that's the kind of heckle that got Ian banned from the Edinburgh Festival. <laughs> <laughs> Sid Singh makes the excellent point, uh, a sort of meta point about Brexit humour, where he says, Brexit is boring. It and Donald Trump are horrible. And pretending there's any nuance left more than that is a waste of time. If the audience can write the same political jokes as you, you don't belong on stage. And I do think there's a, uh, there is a broader issue for comedy. I mean, as indeed for, for music or for, you know, TV comedy or movies, that there are these two sort of monstrous presences mm. and a monstrous president um, <laughs> in our kind of political lives and in our psyches. Um, and one reaches the point where you, you, you barely know what there is to say. I saw Bridget Christie do uh, a show last summer, which she put together very, very quickly after the referendum. And a lot of the jokes she was making, I mean, it was a very sophisticated show as well. as It wasn't like just, it wasn't one-liners. It was very cleverly done. But it also felt quite early and very, therefore very cathartic. And I do think that there's a challenge here uh, for comedians to... I mean, all these, you know, these are, these are decent jokes. They make fair points, but they're not points that have not occurred to you before. And I suppose mm. my experience of good political humour, uh, going back to, like, sort of, you know, Bill Hicks when I was younger, um, there we go, or Stuart Lee when he's been political, or, you know, a whole range of, of comedians, is that um, you're slightly unsettled. Louis C.K. is good at this. Chris Rock's good at this. You don't quite know if you're laughing at the right thing. Frankie Boyle can do this. Mm. And there is something, there, I suppose there is a kind of danger that you are literally just playing it straight down the line. Brexit is stupid. Here's a joke about how stupid Brexit is. Or you go down that sort of topical humour sort of thing of, oh, tearing up the headlines and making a gag about it. You're right, I mean, the thing that was always funny about B. Hicks, I, I don't even know if it was the jokes or the timing. It was just that sense of righteous indignation of there being a man who was just going to say exactly what it was that he thought. And in fact, the, the Brexit... The stuff around Brexit that has made me laugh the most, the stuff around Trump that's made me laugh the most, has been that sustained moral purpose, that just the sense of rage 
usually expressed in some kind of humorous way, that's there. But there has to be a coherence, a consistency of the thing that's being said, not just some kind of clever wordplay or some kind of topical gag. Well, the best, one of my favourite bits of the Bridget Christie show was where she would just be literally sort of just like apoplectic with rage. <laughs> it was almost sort of a line would fizzle out and she'd just start stomping around the stage. And that was so powerful because, like you said, you need that kind of moral anger, not just kind of like a, a sort of a slightly glib, you know, Radio 4 panel show mm. one-liner. Anyway, those are your Brexit headlines. Okay, on to the big story of the week, which was Labour finally, finally, seeing the light on hard versus soft versus possibly never Brexit. We've seen many agonising months of paralysis from Her Majesty's opposition, in which Jeremy Corbyn pretty much accepted the Tories' hard Brexit plans by rejecting any preservation of free movement and stuck to a questionable form of words which said that Labour would ensure Britain has access to the single market just like North Korea and Narnia. <laughs> but this weekend, Keir Starmsy Starmer finally put clear blue water between Labour and the Tories by committing to membership of the single market and to free movement beyond B-Day in March 2019. Ian, what's happened? Is it really such a big deal as we're told? I think it's a huge deal, actually. It's weird, because in, in a sense, it's sort of isn't. Do you remember the CBI came out, Confederation of British Industry, a few weeks ago and said we need a very close, strong connection to, to Europe during the transition? And Labour came out and said, we support that, we think that's right, you give them a call as a journalist, they'll be, you start saying, well, what do you mean by strong? And they were pretty clear of like, no, we're talking about, you know, customs union, single market membership. Who knows? Maybe something even more. You can go further than this. You can say, we will grandfather, keep everything the same, probably apart from our voting rights. The Europeans really don't want us voting for MEPs in 2019 <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, so you could also do it by extending Article 50. There's various ways of doing it. However, they hadn't been explicit in public. And now they've come out and they are explicitly using the words customs union, single market, over the transition. They're a little bit more dodgy with where they said it will go on as long as it needs to. Then in private to journalists, they were like two to four years, by which you can presume it's four years because, you know, this stuff is going to take a really long time. And I, you know, there was a really, there was a, I thought of like a really unhelpful kickback against this from Remainers Online. With so many people were just like, well, they're still supporting Brexit. You sort of think, what? Oh, yeah, yeah. You just, this is not, you know, this, we're not going to win this thing overnight. You salami slice the Labour position step by step by step until you get it into a decent place. You can start here. Maybe the next step is extending Article 50 because, by the way, getting into the customs union single market for, for an interim period is going to take a really long time. It's not just an off-the-shelf thing, as people say. It's, it takes, for a start, you've got to figure out how the hell to create a new sort of formalised customs union thing in order to step into, which replicates what you're doing. This is laborious and time-consuming. Very, very technical. So it'll take a while. We can get them from here to extending Article 50. We can get them from there to actually saying, well, you know, maybe we need to rethink this whole thing. That's how the Labour position changes step by step. And I, I don't think it's helpful that there's this sort of kickback about saying, well, they're still ultimately hard Brexit. Yes, they are. But they're moving in the right direction. And that's to be welcomed. Yeah, I think the most unhelpful thing in really, if you want to achieve any political goal is to be like, oh, when, when the thing happens, when you're going, why don't you do this thing? And then they basically do the thing that you've been asking them <laughs> to do. They go, oh, what kept you? Oh, it doesn't go far enough. Oh, you know, there, are, there is a kind of a Remainer, an anti-Corbyn Remainer hardline contingent mm, mm. that seem to take this good news and just piss all over it. <laughs> and I felt like that isn't helpful for anyone of, of, for their cause. And I don't know quite what, what they expected at this stage. The obvious reaction from the other side, uh, expressed by Mark Wallace of Conservative Home on the telly the other day, mm. uh, is that, well, this is Labour's 13th or 14th or whatever position on Brexit. Why should we take any notice of it? To which I suppose an instant 
riposte is that, well, it does actually make sense if the public mood is moving, and we hope it is moving in our direction, it makes sense to go cautiously. And, you know, uh, as long as they don't go backwards uh, and, and abandon what they've just said and keep heading towards the idea of the very least a soft Brexit and a, and a, and a, and a transition inside the single market and maybe staying in the single market and so on, that's great. You know, it doesn't seem to be any problem at all if they tread carefully towards the right conclusion rather than the wrong conclusion. And, and how do we think that this sort of happened behind the scenes because McDonnell, as far as we know, is pretty hard anti-EU. Corbyn, who I noticed sort of didn't, didn't sort of tweet this news out and sort of seemed to sort of mm. hang in the background a bit. You know, he's, he's kind of a Eurosceptic. What, what do you think the kind of I'm honestly, negotiations I'm increasingly of the view that Corbyn just doesn't give a damn one way or the other. <laughs> I mean, I think it's uh, McDonnell absolutely is, you know, <clears throat> burned in fire, Eurosceptic wants out. I just think Corbyn just seems completely uninterested. In fact, when you hear from Labour people about meetings, just, they just say he's basically just in absence. He just doesn't really seem to care about this one way or another. A lot of work went into shifting Labour's position on this, a lot of internal work. And some of the most important stuff that's been happening is in the trade union movement, where there's been more and more agitation and more and more nervousness about what this kind of thing entails. The real union that split is Unite. Now it has the sort of manufacturing wing on the one hand, you know, a bunch of people that basically know exactly what it means for them and for their members if they leave the single market. On the other hand, you have the sort of Corbyn loyalists who are basically pushing for what they perceive to be the line, which is now has been hard Brexit. You look at the TUC, they're pushing them much more agitated uh, for, for, for staying in the single market. That's starting to shift, and I think that had an effect. The thing to look for now, really, to me, is if that comes to a vote in the Commons... How does that go? First start, where does it take place? I presume mm. it would be maybe some kind of amendment to, to the withdrawal bill, I suppose, possibly. I, it's, it's hard to tell. And then where are the numbers? So you've got, let's say, about 12 Labour MPs, the Kate Hoeys, etc., and the Caroline Flints, who are Remainers but against single market membership, who might vote against the party line on this, even for the interim. And you can add to that the DUP, who are going to vote with the government. So the question then is, how many Tory MPs have kept their head? How many of them would be prepared to vote with Labour in order to do this? All the other opposition parties we know will in order to get this thing through. And that raises some very interesting questions because the battle in Labour has been visible. And not only that has been meaningful internally, to their credit, in the Tories it has not. And we have not seen anywhere near enough agitation by sensible Tories who've been keeping their noses dry and staying the hell out of it. It's about time that they came up and did something. Indeed. Did you see John Rental in The Independent did, it, did a little calculation along the lines you've described? Oh. You know, DUP vote with the Conservatives, Labour hard Brexiteers wouldn't, um, wouldn't vote against the Conservative line. He reckoned 15 to 20 Tory MPs would be needed to vote with Labour in order to, mm. to pass an amendment rejecting some aspect of uh, of the withdrawal bill. Do you, does that sound vaguely plausible, do you think? Yeah, that sounds about right, and I don't, I don't know if we've got the numbers for that. I suspect that that vote would be lost. I, I don't think there's 20 Tory MPs with a backbone. Where does this leave the Lexit position, the left-wing Brexit? Because, uh, you know, it's interesting sort of seeing, seeing reactions that a lot of people just seem to sort of, as the leadership line changed, they sort of changed as if there had been no... Mm. real difference. It's like, oh, well, yeah, no, of course. Like, you know, but they seem to sort of stake out a position based on what we thought the leadership thought last week. And now it's changed. And I wonder, like, the hardline kind of Lexit voices that thought that they were kind of, they had the leadership on side. I mean, have they, have they just been sort of abandoned? Because I think, like you say, I think perhaps 
the, the mistake a lot of people make about Corbyn, a lot of Remainers make about Corbyn, is that he was kind of like a hardline lever, pretending, you know, to be a Remain because he secretly wanted Brexit. But I think that from all the stuff, you know, that, that I've read, I think it backs up your argument. He just didn't care that much. That explains his performance in the referendum last year. Perhaps explains his sort of flexibility here. Mm. Is, is that he's just like, on certain issues, he really cares and he's super hardline. And there are many, other, many issues, including this, which I don't think he's that bothered. And he's quite sort of happy to, mm. to sort of see where the debate goes. Well, you see, I mean, you know, when it's a leadership contest, you see the passion and the fire in the guy then. That's what he looks like when he cares about something. And let's put it on the other side. If it was, if it was a campaign to say, should we maintain our current uh, relations with Saudi Arabia? There's no way that he would pretend to believe in that in order to campaign it. Yeah. What you saw was a guy who just didn't really care very much. And also, let's face it, just isn't actually that smart. And for a lot, of, a lot of this stuff, it just flies right over his head, especially when it starts getting into the details of the customs union and how this works with, you know, very bits of certification and mutual agreements, mutual recognition, all of that. He, he, I don't think he's really on top of it. He's praised as this sort of conviction politician. I don't see conviction there. I just see the sort of brittle fossil of someone who hasn't interrogated or thought about their politics for 30 years. Just someone who's completely lacking any kind of analytical assessment of his own beliefs. So I think he's, he's basically cut off from the whole thing. And in terms of his supporters, I, I totally agree with what you said. They will just back whatever the hell the message is that comes out of his office. If the next message is, let's kill all the firstborn, I think that they'll back that too. Well, that escalated quickly. (laughs) (laughs) I fully expect that to be the next policy. Peter, what about people who want a soft Brexit, want as close, you know, to to remaining as as possible, but have real issues with Corbyn? Like, where does does this leave them if Labour becomes at the next election clearly the party of a softer Brexit? Well, as one of those people who uh, wants a softer Brexit or no Brexit um, as possible and who couldn't stomach uh, ticking a box for Jeremy Corbyn or his party, it really leaves you between a rock and a hard place. Uh, But it does, it could, it seems to me, um, make a big difference. It might not make me want to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, but if Vince Cable says the right things, I might possibly be inclined to to, to vote for him or just not. I, 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 I personally feel that in a democracy you have to try your best to vote. But a lot of other people might say... Actually, I'm so disheartened by, you know, Theresa May's performance. I don't want to vote Labour. I don't like the Liberals. I'm just going to stay at home. And, you know, it could swing constituencies, it seems to me, you know, sort of particularly, particularly ones where uh, people are hanging by a vote. Amber Rudd, are you listening? I had mm. no time for the, the, those MPs uh, led by John Mann, I think, who were just sort of grumbling about this. And it's like, I think because they were all in leave constituencies. Mm. And it was just like, I mean, I, I can see from self-interest what their point was. But I just think at this point, it's like, no, mate, this is this is yeah. this is bigger. And I think we've we've seen what it's like when you spend a while with this sort of ambiguity, sort of pandering to both sides. And it's like, thank God that they've actually picked a direction. They have, well, of course, I mean, I, I still think that the, the argument that got them to pick it was an internal party political one of here's how we kick the, the can further down the road in terms of addressing our own internal inconsistencies on this issue. You know, this way. You can basically, you've got a proposition to Remainers, which is like, look, this is a much, much more moderate interpretation of what the Tories are doing. You'd have years of still being in the single market and customs union. This obviously makes more sense to go with us than it does with the Tories. But you can still deliver that message to your constituents of like, look, we're ultimately going to get rid of freedom of movement, which is the real thing that Labour MPs and sort of northern seats are so concerned about, yeah, yeah. about saying. And of course, that was what Starmer 
specifically mentioned in the piece, ultimately it's management of migration. So that gets them much further down the line. question then is, what does he mean by management of migration? I, I just find it very easy to believe that eventually that would transmute into something like, well, you can come if you've got a job offer, which frankly is not very far away from what the EU rules are anyway. You've basically got three to six months you know, when you go over to a new EU country to show that you either have the means to sustain yourself or that you're getting a job. So that kind of proposition would allow you to come up with many really quite intimate relationships with the EU, which would maintain your trade uh, for quite an extended period. One final sort of thing of this, it just, if you put all of that to one side, despite all of the political machinations, despite where it might end up of making it easier to remain or the soft Brexit or whatever, also sorting out transition, which is increasingly talked about as some kind of proxy war or whatever, it is not a proxy war. Transition and getting that right will save hundreds of thousands of jobs in this country, working class jobs. Those are real jobs that will actually be saved if we can, at the very least, and we are dealing with the sort of the least damaging bad outcome here, just make sure that we don't have a cliff edge there. And I'm becoming increasingly frustrated with political commentators acting like it is some kind of nonsense uh, side debate. It isn't. Plenty of people's livelihoods and their quality of life depends on these decisions. And it's very, very good to see that at long, long last, Labour have come to the right decision on it. For a quick commercial break. Yes, it's me again doing the announcements. I think I'm turning into the Stephen Toast of Romania. So I can hear you, Clem Fandango. <laughs> anyway, ahem. <laughs> Don't forget that there are other ways to keep the misery of Brexit at bay, like our sibling podcast, Big Mouth, the pop culture talk show for people who love music, books, film and TV as much as we love the thought of firing Boris Johnson into the English Channel from a trebuchet. There's a new episode of Quality Pop Culture Conversation every Saturday morning. This week, the Big Mouth team are discussing the epic finale of Game of Thrones, plus the comeback album by LCD Sound System. And just to make it absolutely irresistible, our very own fabulous, glamorous Dorian Linsky's on the show. <laughs> Romaniacs listeners will feel at home. You can get Big Mouth at audioboom.com slash channel slash Big Mouth. Have a listen. Big Mouth is guaranteed free of updates on Britain's European position papers. <laughs> Uh, I've got a little request uh, for listeners. I'm writing an article about Leave voters who have since changed their minds. Uh, now, that may be you or it may be somebody that you know. Um, if you are or know somebody that might be up for talking about their change of heart, um, please uh, reach out to me on Twitter or Facebook, Dorian Linsky. That's L-Y-N-S-K-E-Y. Thanks a lot. And that's the end of the show. Thanks to Ian and Peter, as always. Just want to remind listeners that on 9th of September, there's going to be a People's March for Europe in London. Uh, some of us will be there. Peter, have you sewn the EU stars onto your dark blue unitard yet? Well, just to encourage more people to turn up, I'll be wearing a mankini covered in literally thousands of glittering sequins in the shape of the European flag. And to top it all, I'm going to borrow that hat from the Queen that she wore. She wore the Parliament. Had a pair of high heels. I think a lot of people will be wanting ever closer union with you. Well, indeed, yeah. Well, did you see on, on the homepage of the, of, the, of the march, they've got Eddie Izzard in a pink beret and matching pink, pink lipstick. I'm just so determined to upstage him. Nothing says political victory like Eddie Izzard, does it? <laughs> um, how do you think it's going to go? I imagine people will walk around for a while and then at the end there'll be no change whatsoever. Sorry, I mean, I know I'm supposed to sound more really? upbeat about these kind of things. I just don't really, you know, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's how it will go. I well, because if you were in charge of the march on Washington. <laughs> <laughs> We'd have no change at all. This is exactly the kind of stuff I expect from your soft right fatalism. Stop trying to disassociate yourself from me. This is bullshit. <laughs>
I'm wearing a Che Guevara t-shirt today. <laughs> Remember, you can hear this podcast and all of our back catalogue at audioboom.com slash channel slash Romaniacs dash podcast. And you can find links to all the places you can hear the show at Romaniacs.com. And of course, we're going to end with a reason to be cheerful. Ian, it's your turn. What's up? There haven't actually been that many reasons to be cheerful this week. But I suppose if there was one, it was basically just tracking the Tory response to last week's paper on the Eftercourt. And this isn't me just trying to inject talking more about Eftercourt because it makes me happy. But the fact that they did it, you know, on the day when it came out, there was a sort of eerie silence from them. And you're like, well, why aren't you guys screaming? Like, Can't you see what's being proposed here is against what you so claim to be so terribly upset about? And that silence continued the next day, the next day, and up until now. And I think the reason for it is that they don't really understand the dynamics of the systems which they've been criticizing. So suddenly when it comes into this technical discussion, which is boring to most people, they don't really know how to amass their opposition to it. And that silence, in that silence, there's a lot of potential for political victory. So... You know, it sort of says something about where we are, that the absence of any noise is what gives me the most joy. But nevertheless, that is where we are. And that was what gave me the most joy. I was I think the thing that gave me the most joy was the, the lines about Boris Johnson, that, that a, a source of West, Westminster or Whitehall source said that working with him was like walking behind a horse, collecting the clearing up the dung. <laughs> and that people in the Trump administration said that they, they didn't want to work with him because he was a fool. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which was, lowest w- which, was, which was a little, <laughs> a little harsh, but, um, but, but, but joyous. And so he's, it's the first time he's made me laugh in a while. And that really is the end of the show. To sign off, here's our good friend and listener, Anna Bernicke, with a bit of German for you. Die Deutschen und die Briten sind sich einig. Boris Johnson ist ein Idiot. And there's our, our old friend Boris in there. Post your translations on Twitter and tag us at Romaniacscast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.